It's very easy to become addicted to work, and that again is, I think, destructive not only for the individual but um, to the clients. And the senior associate took me aside and he said, Robert, what you're doing is not sustainable. You've got to do this uh, 30 or 40 years if you want to make a career of it. Excessive fatigue, insomnia, uh, problems with diet, warning signs, if you like, uh, that burnout's developing. It's interesting when you start looking at the number and the impact that stress and burnout is actually having on the law profession, there's clearly something broken here. I was sweating, I had tingly palms, tingly feet, shaking. I pulled off and called my mum and I just like screamed, I'm having a panic attack. You're listening to episode three of Off The Record. This is a podcast series by the journalists at LSJ that aims to shine light on dark issues in the legal profession. I'm your host, Kate Allman. This episode is proudly brought to you by our sponsor, Legal Home Loans, and is produced by Story Mill Studios. Today, we're talking about burnout at work. Burnout became a hot topic, pun totally intended, earlier this year when a BuzzFeed journalist called Anne Helen Peterson wrote a column called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Now, this column went viral because Peterson wrote about things that many of us can relate to. She wrote about experiencing a sort of errand paralysis, and that's where you're so overwhelmed by work and life that you can't seem to move forward on basic admin jobs, like ironing or posting a letter. Sound familiar? Peterson's column detailed some interesting socioeconomic factors that have made burnout seemingly so pervasive for millennials. It turns out we graduated university around the financial crash of 2008, And since then, we've been forced to weather dramatic changes in the work environment, like the rise of the gig economy and what you might call the demise of unions and employment rights. Hello, underpaid Deliveroo and Uber drivers. All this has apparently bred a new generation of overworked, underpaid and disillusioned young people who are desperately trying to inch ahead in competitive jobs markets. But Peterson's article is missing one crucial fact – Millennials aren't the only ones suffering, and I'm going to tell you why I think professions like law are at a higher risk. So burnout is a word that has been thrown around a lot, but it's not a new concept and it doesn't only relate to millennials. In fact, there are almost 6,000 books, chapters, dissertations and journal articles dating back 35 years that have been published on the topic. One of these articles is a massive literature review published in 2009 by three psychologists called Schaufeli, Later, and Maslach, and they looked at all the research and writing about burnout and came up with this definition. As a metaphor for the draining of energy, burnout refers to the smothering of a fire or the extinguishing of a candle. It implies that once a fire was burning, but the fire cannot continue burning brightly unless there are sufficient resources that keep being replenished. Over time, employees experiencing burnout lose the capacity to provide the intense contributions that make an impact. 
The authors write that burnout is not a product of a generation or time per se, but the results of an environment that professional services workers find themselves in today. Greg Demore is a clinical psychiatrist and a professor of psychiatry at Sydney's Westmead Hospital. He's on the board at Minds Count, a mental health organisation for lawyers, and lawyers make up a large proportion of his patients, unfortunately. I asked Greg about the impacts of smartphones and remote working. Did he think burnout was just a problem unique to millennials? Or is this an issue affecting workers in service-based industries like lawyers in our society more broadly? What do you think about this burnout problem, Greg? Is this something that's just affecting millennials or is it something that can affect professions who are finding it difficult to unplug, who have emails and text messages and phone calls coming at them at all hours uh, now that there's so much technology enabling work to come into the home. Is it only related to millennials? Not at all. There's always been an intense relationship in many ways between lawyer and, and clients and clients expect a certain service, particularly if they're paying a lot of money as such. But when you can then have almost unfettered access to your legal brain, if you like, or legal services, clients often feel unrealistically that they can get a a result or an answer immediately from someone. And that just perpetuates and intensifies conditions uh, and a workplace environment and a homeplace environment that leads to this condition that we call burnout. But when you're stressed all the time and it's like pulling an elastic band for too long, it loses elasticity and won't go back. What are some of the symptoms that you see that lawyers who come to you um, complain of that indicates that they've been stressed for too long and they might be suffering burnout? Excessive fatigue, insomnia, uh, problems with diet, uh, sometimes headache, often what we call stress-related headaches. These are often warning signs that uh, a condition like burnout might be developing or has developed. Then there are more commonly recognised features, that sort of sense of exhaustion, not just physical exhaustion, but emotional exhaustion. But it can predispose to more serious psychological states such as severe anxiety, depression, substance abuse, mood uh, instability, low mood, uh, thoughts of self-harm, there, that's really the, that's where the majority of problems lie. What is it about law and the legal profession then that makes lawyers susceptible to these issues? But when you're in an environment that is ruthlessly competitive, that at times I think loses its soul, the patients I've seen in law wonder whether they're really doing what is intrinsically worthwhile or doing things really to finance a certain lifestyle or live a certain lifestyle. When we talk about burnout among lawyers, most people automatically visualise lawyers in top-tier firms strapped to their desks, billing hundreds of hours each month. It's an uncomfortably common scenario reported by the media, especially in the wake of the Banking Royal Commission. Articles published in the Australian Financial Review in January which claimed to interview more than 30 young corporate lawyers, cited those lawyers working past midnight, weekends and 14-hour days as unnervingly common. 
One anonymous complainant reportedly told a Safe Work New South Wales investigation that some lawyers slept in their offices 60 to 80 nights per year. And to put that in perspective, that's an average of more than two nights per working week. Robert Pelletier is a lawyer who experienced this sort of stress when he worked in commercial litigation for 20 years. The pressure of billable targets and not feeling comfortable enough to speak about mental health issues drove Robert to unemployment, and he was eventually diagnosed with clinical depression. I spoke with Robert about the pressure he faced from what he calls the macho boys club of corporate law. Look, I was putting in ridiculous hours. Like how long? Look, I was going in on weekends, I was working late. When you're in a top-tier firm, the world of the top-tier law firm is the legal universe. I was certainly, I I would say quite freely, I was beguiled by the, um, what I thought was success, which is the pathway to becoming a partner. And the senior associate took me aside and he said, Robert, what you're doing is not sustainable. You've got to do this uh, 30 or 40 years if you want to make a career of it. And that was the best advice I got. Uh, I did things then that I now would, would regard as unethical. You touched on this in your email that the culture was pretty um, full on. You know, it was pretty dog eat dog. Can you speak to that at all? Well, my observation of the profession, uh, of the private profession, is that for, for many people, um, the measure of a, of a practitioner's worth is the revenue they bring in. There's this superficial macho image that's driven by ideas of what success looks like, uh, and, and success is identified as having a BMW or a Mercedes-Benz in the, in the garage, preferably two or three, having the business or first-class trips to Europe every year. How does the sort of billing and money-focused culture, how does it disregard humans like that? What's the effect? Well, to me, it's, it's such a narrow view of what it is to be human. The view of success is, is success purely in monetary terms and purely in terms of building the business instead of what is actually sustainable and realistic that we can make a long-term, and people can have a life outside the centre. When you think back on that time, how would you describe it in your mind? I don't know how to speak about it, Kate. It was indeed a dark time. I've seen other people burn out, combust, and they do that in every profession. But I've seen so many lawyers burn out, and they can't be honest. They can't. Lawyers have to be, they have to be right. And was there much discussion about mental health when you were working in corporate law or was there a reluctance among lawyers to seem vulnerable? The last four or five years, I don't know when it started, but people weren't talking about well-being. What does well-being mean? And it means a whole lot more, in my humble opinion, than, than having your first-class trip to Europe every year. The risk for stressed out lawyers becoming burnt out and worse is well documented. The University of Sydney Brain and Mind Research Institute has found that 33% of lawyers and 20% of barristers are suffering disability and distress due to depression. This compares to 17% in the general population who are suffering a mental illness. 
Now, for city lawyers like Robert, the pressure of billable targets is a commonly cited cause for burnout. But while lawyers in smaller firms and community legal centres perhaps report fewer hours in the office, they can be under arguably greater pressure as the sole practitioner dealing with myriad clients and legal problems. I raised this issue with a friend of mine from law school who moved out to practice in a regional firm in Griffith two years ago. Natalie Goodall is a solicitor at Cater and Bloomer who went through what she says was a baptism of fire when she left her Sydney job at Spark Helmore to move her career to Griffith. When I had my breakdown and they printed out my matter list, I had 170. And hanging over your head kind of thing. Every day, yeah. So what led to your breakdown? So I lasted like 18 months. I was overwhelmed and it was tough but I put it down to my inexperience and I thought the harder I work and I'll I'll figure it out I'll get better and I'll get faster and then I just had a panic attack out of nowhere. Do you think you can describe what it felt like physically for someone who has never had a panic attack? So I was driving wasn't thinking about anything in particular I had all my files prepared for that day and then I just Mm. panicked and and couldn't breathe and then now that I understand how panic attacks work I I hyperventilated it's a really straight road with nowhere you can pull off and it's like it's a big highway with big trucks on it and stuff so I had to keep driving for about 15 minutes as I was like had a few a series of attacks just couldn't breathe felt like I couldn't get a breath in and then your body goes into fight or flight I was sweating I had tingly palms tingly feet shaking because that went on for so long, I, I started to lose vision. And that's when I was luckily very close and could pull into the into the parking bay. But like my body was, you know, shutting off non-essential sensors because it wasn't getting enough oxygen. So you were stopped at the side of the road in the middle of the bush, hyperventilating. Then what happened? I pulled off and called my mum and I just like screamed, I'm having a panic attack. And she just went into major mum mode and like, just talked me through it and like meditated me out of it type thing. She or my Sam, my partner, I can't remember who, contacted my office, contacted an assistant who I'm really close with and then she got my boss who's Ian and he like ran to the car and came out and uh, he took the suitcase of files and he did the Hillston shift and that colleague drove me back. But then I ended up having to have about two weeks off, went to the doctor, got medication, started seeing a psychologist. Did anyone at work notice or realise that you were burning out? So Ian, my boss, was like, I had no idea you were so overwhelmed. I wasn't sleeping, like digestion issue, like stomach problems. I got the shakes, like I'd feel sick. I had no appetite, all those sorts of things. But I never expressly said to him, I'm so overwhelmed that I'm not coping. I never said that. How was your relationship with Sam at the time? pretty strained actually just miserable and stressed snappy and you know you come home from work and you're still thinking about work so you can't relax I missed I missed a lot of things like I didn't go to events because I work like social events social events yeah that was better for me because I couldn't enjoy the social event I was thinking about work or I was scared I'd see a client there oh, <laughs> and they'd be really? like and I was worried they'd think what's she doing out you know on a <sighs> Thursday night when she hasn't replied to my email of Monday <laughs> Now, I couldn't talk about burnout without also speaking to someone from the community legal sector. 
Lawyers in CLCs work with some of the most disadvantaged people in our communities, representing homeless people or refugees or victims of domestic violence, often with tiny budgets and no human resources department to check in with the lawyers when they're struggling. Vicarious trauma is a major risk, and it's something I discussed with Ali Mojahidi, the principal solicitor at Sydney's Immigration Advice and Rights Centre. I, well, I think I'll start by saying that there are um, some great parts to the job, um, which include working with you know, inspirational people and also having the opportunity to, and, and the privilege really, of working with people who are uh, disadvantaged and, and the most vulnerable, which then sort of leads you to the harder parts because uh, you are also dealing on a daily basis with um, survivors of uh, family violence, torture, sexual abuse, that can um, have its own difficulties, including, um, you know, the vicarious trauma, but you, know, you almost take on the role or you feel as though you need to take on the role of a social worker. It's very difficult in that situation because you're really not in a position to offer any sort of comfort or um, deal with the issues that you know they're going to be facing. Speaking broadly, can you give any examples of some difficult cases or clients you've worked with? I think the examples that have been most disturbing to me have been clients, um, including minors and people with intellectual disabilities, who have been sexually assaulted in immigration detention centres, whether it's onshore or in a regional processing um, centre, and feeling really quite helpless in, in either ha- having been able to prevent it. They're the ones that I've over the years, I've struggled with the most. So with all this raw and distressing material, does that kind of, that work, do you bring it home with you? Does it keep you awake at night? With some, with some clients, I used to worry greatly about them and their welfare. And, you know, to be honest, I, I've had nightmares about the welfare of clients and that does, that can sort of take its toll on your uh, sleep. You just mentioned you'd been through burnout. What did it feel like to you? My experience of burnout, lack of energy, it felt like the life had been sucked out of you, not being able to start a task which, once you actually do it, it would have taken you no more than two minutes. But the idea of starting it just felt like an impossible task. Um, So millennials have been dubbed the burnout generation and I think it is related to the fact that in the digital age we're always connected so we're always got clients who can call us email us message us but you're kind of always on is that the case do you feel like the digital age is become is making burnout more of a problem i've certainly received emails from clients at 3 4 a.m in the morning mm-hmm. you are at that point um, responsible for setting the boundaries and it can be very very difficult to to set those boundaries when your phone lights up. You're immediately wanting to find out what it says. So from what I can tell after speaking with these lawyers, stress and resulting burnout is one of the biggest threats facing the health, well-being and performance of legal professionals in all sectors. Most large law firms are starting to become aware of this, that this sort of stress can have a major impact on a company's bottom line. Unsurprisingly, burnt-out lawyers are pretty unproductive. 
So many firms run mental health awareness programs under corporate jargon like wellness. But many working in the profession question whether these programs represent an honest commitment to reducing long hours and damaging working cultures. It might be okay for senior lawyers and partners to talk about their mental health struggles, but what about the rest of the firm? Will young lawyers be overlooked for promotions? Will they be considered snowflakes and told to get out of the kitchen if they can't handle the heat? I posted this question on LinkedIn in January, and the post attracted more than 200 responses and was viewed nearly 50,000 times, so I think I hit a nerve. No fewer than 25 lawyers sent me private messages detailing their fears and repercussions they had experienced for speaking out about mental health. One graduate from Sydney wrote me this very revealing message. No junior lawyers declare any mental health issues or ongoing health. Anyone who does, regardless of firm policy, is treated as though they are delicate snowflakes and that they aren't serious, nor are they capable. Senior lawyers treat them, their flexible work arrangements and medically advised time off, as them being difficult and unreliable. They are considered to be a bad lawyer. They are treated noticeably differently from everyone else. They are ostracised. I have witnessed, experienced, and been told about the above. This is not unusual, and it is no wonder that so many suffer in silence, because that is likely more manageable than what would happen to them if they admitted what was wrong and asked for help. Alison Earle is an international speaker, trainer, strategist, and positive psychology practitioner who's worked in Sydney, London, and New York, helping businesses to utilize stress in positive ways. She's been guest lecturing in behavioural economics at Harvard and even leads a think tank there on stress and behavioural change. So when I heard that Alison was putting together a white paper on stress and the law, I had to meet her. How can you define burnout? When does stress become... Become burnout, yeah. Yeah, it's stress and burnout are such interconnected things, but they're definitely different things. Uh, and one thing I want to start by saying is stress has just got such a negative connotation in our society today. It's not always bad, right. right? Stress can actually be a really good thing, a really powerful driver of performance. It can be a source of connection and growth uh, when we can attach meaning to it. Stress is actually there to help us step up and perform in times that we need to. Um, Stress leads into burnout uh, when you are maintaining this high level without ever having moments of recovery. If you're always in this very high chronic state of stress, um, then it can gener- then it can lead into burnout, which is usually signaled by sheer exhaustion. Mm-hmm. The biggest signals that someone's hit burnout is actually when they stop caring. Uh, at the end of the day, they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They become much more withdrawn and apathetic. But do you think that having the digital the digital age and always being connected, and particularly for lawyers who are always now on call for their clients, they can be reached by mobile phone, text message, email. The the reality is the technology and the sort of more flexible 
working environments, yeah, you can work wherever you want. And it's very hard to switch off. It's very hard to actually take time to recover, recharge and and, or even rebound from high stress, right? But the, the one thing we can all do, we can all take control of our own belief system and our mindsets through very simple mindset interventions. I'm not saying that stress can be, you know, eliminated. That's that's rubbish. Stress cannot be eliminated, but we can change the way we respond to it uh, to something that's more productive. Um, so literally the mindset intervention is reminding us of the ways in which stress is there to help us. Now, you write about something called a positive mindset intervention, which is where you reframe stress in a positive light. And you can think of it as something positive, for example, that helps us meet deadlines or urges us to get work done when we need to. How can lawyers use this technique? Simply, they've shown in the studies, simply by prompting people with the belief system that stress can be helpful Importantly, you need to build in an opportunity to reward yourself and recharge. Using stress as a source of connection, and particularly in law um, environments, uh, that stress and tension and conflict can actually create a lot of divide. So using the stress as a way to connect and actually share that universal experience and remind us that, hey, we're in this together and and we're actually all shooting for the same outcome here um, can actually create a huge amount of camaraderie. So why is it so important that we try and um, prevent burnout before it becomes an issue. The earlier we can interrupt that and actually build resilience, we we can prevent a whole lot of people, so not even just leaving their job, leaving the career, yeah, like leaving the industry. Yeah. Who should be taking on that kind of responsibility to look out for lawyers and to help them prevent burnout? So I'm a huge believer that people need to take personal responsibility for their own situation. Uh, and and that doesn't mean that workplaces shouldn't be making, you know, tackling some of these systemic issues. They absolutely should be. The leadership need to be setting a vision that is is inspiring and motivating and reminds people why their role matters and and sets them up for success taking mini mini moments of recharge and and having a life outside of work and fa- and being able to put time into your family and supporting each other that concludes episode 3 of off the record a podcast series to shine light on dark issues in the legal profession. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for upcoming episodes which will investigate other taboo topics in law. If you like the series or if you have ideas for other topics we should cover, you can reach me, Kate Allman, on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook or tune into the Law Society of New South Wales social media accounts. You can also email us at offtherecord at lawsociety.com.au. The people that had high levels of stress were 43% more likely to die prematurely, but only if they thought stress was bad. Oh, wow. The people who believed stress was not bad had the lowest risk of death. Yeah. So our beliefs about stress are probably more damaging than stress itself. You've been listening to Off the Record.